Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting this afternoon from an overcast and stormy day in West Kelowna, British Columbia. In today's program, we continue our series on the conservation of humanity, today delving into the subject matter of addiction treatment. Joining us for today's episode is Mr. Zach Rhodes, an addiction treatment coach from the Life Process Program. The Life Process Program was designed and developed by the eminent Dr. Stanton Peel, the world's leading authority on non-12-step addiction recovery. Dr. Peel is a world-renowned addiction expert, author, and therapist who has remained prominently at the forefront of the addiction field for nearly five decades, challenging and changing the way people understand addiction and recovery. The Life Process Program works with the idea that addiction occurs from a range of experiences, a recognition of the possibility of natural recovery from addiction, and the harm reduction approach to addiction. Zach himself once battled addictions, <clears throat> including destructive involvement with opiates, but he now lives a healthy and happy life with his wife and daughter in Vermont. Using a very non-judgmental approach, Zach is passionate about helping people understand themselves better and how their addiction may be holding them back from the life they wish to lead. Zach is a columnist for Filter Magazine, and together with Dr. Peel, co-authored the book, Outgrowing Addiction with Common Sense Instead of Disease Therapy, and Zach is also a broadcaster, being the host of the Social Exchange podcast, and he also looks after the Life Process Programs podcast. Zach, you're a busy guy. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for time, and welcome to the show. Great talking with you, too. I should say the same about you. You seem busy, and I'm glad that we managed to carve out some time to talk. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's always a challenge to sort of line people's schedules up, but um, I'm glad we've had an opportunity to chat today. Yeah. So I guess, uh, Zach, first off, um, can you please share with the listeners uh, your battle and recovery from your opiate addiction? Yeah, depending on how far back you want to start. So if you want to push me forward uh, years that you can here. But when I, uh, growing up, I, I guess I, you'd say I exhibited challenging behavior in schools. Pretty bright guy, I'd say. Uh, you know, and uh, intellectual, that which has nothing to do with intelligence, just uh, intellectualized things. So those are the kinds of conversations I like to have. Those are my preferences. So it was a pretty outgoing guy. And, but, you know, dis disorganized, uh, had trouble meeting the day-to-day -day quotas. I wasn't particularly conscientious, I don't think. So I had trouble in schools. Uh, I didn't have trouble really with anything or any relationships until I hit schools. And so for, I had a narrative built about me, which was something like uh, the smart guy doesn't put in any effort. And that really rode with me throughout my school career. I don't know. I mean, I look back on it and I, I don't mean to blame it on that, but that's certainly part of what happened for me because it's a narrative that I created for myself as well. Um, anyway, I got into high school years, you know, formidable years for just trying to form an identity and I found that I was at ease when I was doing drugs or involved in the social relationships that centered around drugs, drug use, partying, things like that. And I developed a relationship with drugs, especially opiates. That was my preference, uh, which lasted well into adulthood, into my 20s, and which I wound up kicking on my own by just becoming mature and finding channels of life that were worth pursuing that obviously were competitive with drug use. You know, they didn't jive with a drug using kind of a lifestyle. So I stopped, I happened to stop using drugs and I, I would say that it was, it'd be nearly impossible for me to go back to a lifestyle where if I use them, I'd be doing it destructively. Right. Right. 
And so that's, um, that's interesting. So you, 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 did you undergo any treatment then, or you just sort of um, did some of your own self-reflection and self-study and, and, and pulled yourself out of that addictive cycle? When I was younger, I did. I was in some treatment programs, uh, outpatient treatment programs, and none of those did me any good. Um, so by the time I was able to leave the destructive cycle behind, it was, and it wasn't really just, I, I wasn't purposely trying to rid myself of an addiction, really. I mean, I wasn't really thinking about it. I think it got to a point where, I think you said self-inspection, and my values just usurped my behavior around drug use. And so as, uh, as it states in your book, you know, essentially you, you outgrew your, your need for that destructive pattern or, or you began to develop other goals and aspirations that uh, you realized were being hindered by your, your destructive behavior. Yeah. I mean, those goals were sort of building over time. They didn't come out of nowhere. Um, but, but I was able to finally associate those goals and things that I had in my life, um, you know, positive aspects of who I was with the kind of person I want to be, which happens with age, I found out, you know, I thought that story was sort of anomalous and that, that, uh, you know, if I, you kind of can't tell that story because you're, it's, it's so rare. And we figured out, I figured out as I was researching, uh, that's actually not rare at all. People tend to grow out of their addictions over time, even destructive addictions to drugs that people consider harder drugs. Although I will, I will take issue with that. Uh, way of thinking about them, but heroin, methamphetamines, cocaine, uh, people overcome those addictions and often without professional help. Interesting. And was there a pivotal, uh, sorry, a pivotal point uh, in your recovery process? Was there a singular event that really kind of changed your, your path? Well, I remember, um, I want to, I'm going to say no, but because I know realistically how life and development work. And so I do remember certain period of time when I thought, you know, I've, tr I've tried to get over this crazy cycle before, but for some reason, I feel like this time's the time. I, there was nothing really, I can't point to one thing that made me feel that way. And um, I also know that just looking back, you attribute things to a point in time, usually falsely. Um, so I, 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 try, I don't, I don't have a good juicy story for you. I want to, but I, I think it's escaping me. <laughs> okay. I mean, because some people do, you know, whether it's a car accident or, uh, oh, a yeah, I see. Or, right? I see what you're saying. Well, okay. So I, I did, um, I had a near death experience. Uh, okay. Lu luckily, but luckily I was found, I was not responsive. Uh, I was taken to the hospital. I was able to be helped. I, I assumed that it was a batch of heroin that was that had fentanyl or something that I didn't know about it in it. Um, although I don't know, I never got the drugs tested. I say that because it it seemed out of the ordinary that the amount that I did would have caused anything like uh, asphyxiation that I was experiencing. Um, but even at that point, you know, it wasn't like, all right, now that I've had this experience, I've got to quit. If anything, you know, that gave me that gave me more fuel to want to escape reality and stay in oblivion rather than experience life consciously. So what, you know, what really, I, I wouldn't say that maybe it was a signpost, maybe it was a, a good marker for me, but I still wouldn't say that that was the pivotal moment. People want to, people hear that story and they, you're not doing this, but 
people try to lead it that way. Like, okay, so after that, then you stopped. And I didn't stop using after that. And I didn't, didn't have a real consideration of being done with uh, drug use yet as a, as a pillar of my life. Well, I guess in, in some ways that uh, may even embolden a user because it's like, well, you know, I'm, I didn't die. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to go again. Yeah. Well, I was worried, you know, it did scare me, you know, so I can't say it didn't, didn't deter me at all, but it didn't. I think what got, what propelled me forward was, as you said, uh, as you reiterated, just the, so many positive involvements in my life, a lot of goals, resources, uh, potential. And it didn't seem like it really helped. The deterrent didn't help as much as the pull, or I guess the push from all of those dimensions of my life. Right, right. I think it's an important distinction because if, if you have something that you're gravitating towards that um, betters your life, betters your situation, betters your mental condition, that's a, a lot more positive and powerful than a, an admonishment or a punishment to push one away. I mean, it's pain or pleasure, right? And I think most people, if, if those um, <clears throat> better attributes or better experiences are, are the pain or sort of the pleasure, then that's really going to be more effective than, than the pain or, uh, you know, the punishment that either other people or yourself put on or put onto the situation. I think that's right. I think the formula really is, um, personal agency and responsibility associated with positive channels of life. Yeah. And so did these experiences then sort of shape your current career path? Yeah, in a way, for sure. Um, I always wanted to do writing and I've, I did consulting with families around child development for a while. So that really had nothing to do with addiction or any of my experience. But meeting Stanton Peel, who you mentioned earlier, uh, that, that did have a lot to do with my experience. I was so interested in addiction because reading his work and the work of just a few others got me looking at what addiction meant in a much deeper, uh, reflective way. And so I, I reached out to Stanton to be a guest on a podcast that I was doing. And at that time, I, you know, maybe 50 people <laughs> listened to the podcast. Um, you know, on a good day, because it was really supposed to be an adjunct to, uh, you know, con consultation or, or uh, presentations or things like that. And so I got a good, I interviewed uh, Michael Shermer from Skeptic Magazine, Carol Tavris, the author of Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me, social psychologist, and Stanton Peel, uh, all in a row. And it was just on a good, just had a good momentum going. And uh, all of those people got me thinking about so many things and just deeper, more considerate, thoughtful ways. And when Stanton, I got to talk to Stanton about addiction, the things he was saying to me in our interview validated and reflected just my experience to a T, the commonsensical way that he was talking about addiction. I immediately saw what you're talking about with respect to addiction, not only describes what is true, seems to be true about my life. It also describes my work with kids. It also describes just human development and what it means to become more mature. So that, so my experience mixed with that conversation, I could say that conversation was probably pivotal in my, my career in the addiction field. Well, and certainly his perspective, which is much more empowering than uh, some of the 12 step uh, type treatment programs. Uh, it, it's refreshing and, and it, you know, does put the power into the individual's hands uh, and mm. doesn't, uh, doesn't label that person as somehow defective, which, you know, obviously isn't, uh, it, no, nobody wants to be labeled in that way. Yeah, I, I agree. 
a friend of ours, Johan Hari, it's a man who wrote the book uh, Chasing the Scream uh, about the war on drugs. And he, he sort of understands AA to be that way too. And even he would say, you know, at, the, at a time when there's so little connection, you know, it's what we're th- longing for. How can you really knock support groups, at least for like the connection that they provide? And so at that time, that's how I was thinking about it. Like I knew that the, the precepts of AA weren't quite right for me. I knew there was something wonky, funky about it that didn't quite line up. But I thought, you know, so many people are using it and it seems so effective. Stanton's understanding of addiction like you say is is much more just realistic and also empowering and at the same time it gave me language to apply to that dissonance that i was feeling and i think he's done that for a lot of people be it yes. he's he's seen by some as an iconoclast especially in the addiction and recovery field um and for some he's seen as just heroic because he puts this great language practical language to so many people's experiences Kind of reminds me of if you ever had a bad breakup and listened to a love song or something like that. So yeah, that's exactly how I feel. <laughs> that's that's what his writing and and speaking to me has done for me. Oh, that's excellent. Uh, so can you please share with the listeners uh, your definition of addiction? Yeah, it's kind of fluid, but basically, it's a addiction is an experience. It's a relationship people form with. It could be a drug, an activity, an involvement, and it's a relationship that is really a dysfunctional coping mechanism you know it seems like it, it provides some sort of pleasure maybe in the short term or maybe an illusory sense of pleasure where people couldn't get it otherwise or or some sort of momentary relief or illusory relief that people couldn't find otherwise and people clutch this relationship so tightly that they start to box out all other involvements in their life. It actually detracts from their ability to generate positive experiences in other areas of their lives. That's what I see. That's kind of long-winded, I guess, but it encapsulates just about every relationship someone could form, which is maybe the beginning of our unique definition of addiction. It's not particular to drugs. And thus we can't put sole sole, uh, blame on addiction on drugs. Yeah, well, there, you know, there's been some recent, uh, you know, the, the social dilemma movie that came out uh, yeah. and talking about, you know, the, the dopamine hit that yeah. uh, you receive from the likes that you get. And, you know, we're, we're seeing, uh, uh, you know, the, the younger, the younger generation heavily affected by that. And certainly our neurotransmitters are, you know, equal to or greater in terms of their, their power to control our, our psyche and our, and our emotions um, similar to you know an exogenous drug, so that the you're you're if you're creating certain chemicals in your body that are making you feel good, and you don't have those, you're going to have a sense of longing. Uh, or if you're if you don't have other things in your life to to move towards, your life is boring or mundane or, or unhappy. Uh, that is your source of happiness, right? Yeah, and even in that movie, people can't help but to talk about things at the level of the brain, and I think that. Um, you know, you want to talk, you, you want neuroscientists out there. You want to know, we want to know about the brain. It's part of our, the whole gestalt. But at the same time, it's folk psychology takes care of about everything you want to know about addiction. That is just pure commonsensical, practical, plain English terms without looking, inspecting the brain or talking about dopamine or something like that. Because I mean, it's true that 
you know, you, you behave in some way and your brain responds accordingly or vice versa. But when it comes to relationships or, you know, develop people developing or habits that people form or get rid of, there's this myth that we can't seem to relinquish to get rid of that something about how our brain forms around those involvements is damaged. Like it can't repair. And that's the antithesis of what we know and believe to be true about addiction. Right. Right. So in your opinion, then is addiction a disease? No, I say no. I, you know, I think you can call, you can call any kind of behavior a disease if you want to. It's just, there's no real place epidemiologically speaking for addiction to, to live. <laughs> you know, we were talking, Santa and I were talking yesterday about most primary care doctors at a practical level, even if they call addiction a disease, uh, they're not going to say that they treat it the same way as they treat, I don't know, diabetes or cancer or something like that. It's just, just an odd way to talk about it. And I think, that I, I understand that there is a part of the basis for doing it is to say, if it's not a disease, then doesn't that mean that somebody's a failure or, or has failed morally? And so how could you say that we need it to be a disease? We need it to be a health issue and a medical disorder. And it can have something to do with health. That can have doctors can have their hand in it and look at it in a heuristic, but calling it a disease is so limiting. Um, and I don't think it's not true just because it's limiting. I just think that's a second order effect of calling it incorrectly a brain disease. There's nothing that, you know, it can't be done to mitigate an addiction that can't be talked about and just the, the basic psychology and, and uh, social and personal development in a person's life. Right, right. <clears throat> so you've said that the innate pessimism of the disease model is self-fulfilling, um, which, and I guess that also then sort of extends into uh, the 12-step programs. And in your opinion, why do those 12-step programs not appeal to so many people? Because why don't they appeal to people? Yes. Um, well, if you're someone like me, you don't want to spin your wheels every day. I mean, it, when it comes to progress, it's hard to make it if you're talking about past events and not looking toward the future. There's a man named uh, Dr. Marty Seligman, or Seligman, who is, uh, he's like the godfather of positive psychology. He turned the, the uh, folklore into something scientific. And I think he talks about this in spades. He always talks about, you know, when you, one of my favorite quotes that he brings up is when you're laying in bed thinking about what you want in life, you're never really thinking about how to get from negative three to negative two. You're trying to think about how to get from one to two. Um, you know, you're not trying to become indifferent or take, settle all your scores of your past. You're really trying to figure out what you want. What, what are you going to do tomorrow? How are you going to become a better person? And 12 steps and the disease model leave with you this mark as though it's somewhere in there and it could explode again and, and it could take you over at any moment and this fear. And that I think is what becomes self-fulfilling. If somebody forms their essence around the belief that they're diseased or that there's something wrong with them that they can't, it just can't kick. They're just going to have to maintain it for as long as they can. I think that's self-fulfilling. It could be damaging. 
So it's, it's almost uh, the 12 step process is then maybe even an outdated modality given the, the more recent uh, options. Well, I certainly think it's outdated and it's anything that's not willing to change text with the times and new information. Uh, it's by, in my, in my view, by definition outdated. Oh, yeah. Um, and then obviously, uh, you know, we kind of covered this already, but uh, th there really isn't a medical solution to addiction. Then. I mean, that seems to be a delusion, right? It's, it really has to be a, a ch ultimately a choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, there are, uh, it's not that the medical field has nothing to say about addiction or, or nothing helpful that they can do about addiction. But as you say, um, ultimately, it has to be somebody wanting to choose conscious living over oblivion or you know escaping conscious living yeah. i know that 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 happens at scale at different scales and for some people it's easier said than done you know if you don't have if you lack the resources or you lack skills um lack connection self-worth then you're going to have a hard time and that's actually our point we get a lot of times people who have read our book say well, you are always talking about how people outgrow their addictions. Why then, you know, what do we just ignore all the people who have the worst problems? That's, and then that's really the opposite of what we're saying. We're saying that we are already sort of ignoring people with the worst problems by pretending that there's something that they're not rather than empowering them with the tools that would help them, you know, live a life on their own. Right, right. Um, and then is altering one's consciousness a natural human experience? Yeah. I, 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 I mean, <laughs> yeah. for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's, sure. and it's, I, I think that's perhaps partly where we get into the, the problem is that, uh, you know, humans have been altering their consciousness uh, since humans have been walking upright on the planet. Uh, by whichever means they can, uh, doesn't mean that they were necessarily addicted. I mean, uh, a bear or uh, or an ungulate that finds some some fermenting apples under a tree, they'll eat all the apples, pass out, probably have a bit of a hangover, and walk into the woods and you know kind of have a chuckle to themselves that uh, you know that was an interesting experience. And uh, <laughs> I, I think uh, you know their Western society seems to have solely accepted alcohol as uh, the singular accepted means of this consciousness shift. Um, and I don't know, I don't think that that has been a healthy outcome. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, that, that alcohol is for whatever reason seen as the one, the one true, uh, substance that we can say is okay. And, and other, other drugs are not. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's socially acceptable. I mean, if, right. we, if we dial, if we dial things back to, uh, the Reagan era and the war on drugs, you know, they're, they're, they're sitting around with their uh, uh, mixed drinks, highballs, and, and they're all <laughs> getting Mad shit. Men, yeah. yeah, they're all getting shit faced, and they're talking about the war on drugs. Yet they're all consuming. You know, and I'm not sure why alcohol isn't considered a drug. I mean, it's it, 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 the effect that it has on the body is no different than than any of the other you know quote unquote drugs. Yeah, there's some history behind it. You know, and the and the U.S. of course, with its own history, has so much sway over the way the, the world thinks about these things. Um, and so, yeah, it's, of course, contradictory that one substance would be classified as less harmful or better or okay when we're talking, we're demonizing other substances and other people for using them. You, you said it, I think. I mean, we all have desires. It, we all have itches we need to be scratched, desires that we want to 
take care of pain that we want to reduce all the time. It's so fluid. And whether that's through sex or whether that's through just conversation or God forbid, you know, you take a substance, you're an adult, you understand what the substance is, you know, it's risks, uh, you know, it's benefits and you, you try to make a decision about whether you want to do it or not and incorporate that into a balanced life. It's just something people have been doing. And we had this bizarre categorization of that some drugs are should be deemed illegal or that they're more inherently dangerous or that they have some ineluctable chemical hook. If you take them, then you can't escape them. It's all of that is utter nonsense. And it really, that whole way of thinking, logically speaking, falls apart under very minimal examination, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or scientific scrutiny. Sure. Um, and, and it does seem though that North America has a relationship with alcohol that's much different, for example, in Europe. Um, and is that perhaps why we see more substance abuse uh, in North America? Oh, yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. For sure. I mean, we have a, so we still have a temperance attitude around alcohol. It's just once you turn 21, uh, now, you're, now you're accepted. Whereas there are countries that incorporate alcohol into a healthy lifestyle with no real you know, there's no allure to it, really. It's just an, another way that people, you know, it's a social lubricant. It's a traditional or ceremonial, uh, you know, way of celebrating something. And yeah, when we get to the, in the U.S. and in Canada, you know, people get to college age. And because of the temperance attitudes from growing up, they weren't allowed to touch alcohol. So they probably did, but, you know, they did it on their own terms. And they haven't had any proper guidance about how to incorporate something like alcohol into their lives. And so, yeah, at college age, we have so much binge drinking. And uh, that's not a healthy way to think about alcohol. It's something that we know is legal, that we know people are going to have access to. And there's no real life education around what it means to have access to it and, and still live in a balanced way. Yeah, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, in, in many European countries, you're, you know, 12, 13 years old, and you're sitting down with a bit of wine for the family dinner, and you begin to realize that, you know, if you have too much, you're going to feel like shit. And, right. uh, uh, and, and you don't, you know, there may be a crazy uncle or something that's overdoing it, but most people are engaging and get, get to a point, but don't take it beyond a point. And, and so you, you begin to learn uh, and develop that relationship, which is positive and can be incorporated into a, a normal lifestyle. And you can talk about it. So you can, you can feel like shit and then you can wake up the next day and you can have a conversation with somebody who's uh, more mature and knows better and is a good role model to say, yeah, that's happened to me too. Here's what I do. It's, that's like the, the ultimate harm reduction approach. Um, yeah, you, you, did, you did too much of this thing. You ate too much. Don't do that next time. Or here's what I've done. Here's a story from my youth. You're allowed to, in some places, you're allowed to say that. And so that conversation itself just inspires social learning from, from top down, from, parent, from, from an older generation to a younger generation, so that they can incorporate that with their cohort. So. Sure, sure. And, and then are, uh, are psychedelics a healthier or more beneficial choice to alter the wakeful, problem-solving cognitive state of being? In, in, I don't in... know. I, I, I'm interested to see what you think about that. I have... Um, this uh, man, Dr. Carl Hart, just wrote a book called Drug Use for Grownups. And one of my favorite things that he says when he talks uh, to different groups is, you got to get rid of this, my drug is better than yours kind of an attitude. For sure, 
some of the benefits of psychedelics seem to be that it can get you to a place of introspection, observation, a change in perspective uh, that, that for whatever reason happens in short order like that. Some, a thing that you, you might take months to think about otherwise or months of experiencing different things to, to reach this conclusion otherwise just helps shift a perspective in some way. And then again, some people's psychedelic experiences do nothing like that. It's just you can use them just as destructively as anything else. Uh, and you chase that same dragon. So I see that psychedelics have great utility. And I also understand that people can uh, form destructive habits with them just like anything. Right. Yeah, I, th I think from, from my perspective, I think that humanity has probably evolved uh, lockstep with psychedelics. Um, mm. I mean, even, even most recently in our Western civilization with the, the mysteries of uh, Eleusis there in, in Greece, um, which was uh, an ergot-based brew, which is, uh, you know, has an indole similar to LSD. And, uh, you know, the, the Aristotle and Plato participated um, and, you know, they're basically through that experience had a, um, an experience outside of this realm, which put things into perspective in terms of death. And, and, and as you say, it's that introspection and self-observation, uh, which I think is very useful. And, and we're seeing now uh, psilocybin being used clinically in end-of-life situations and, and through PTSD. And I think that's potentially some of this destructive behavior around, you know, what we might call the street drugs, mm. um, that desire to escape a situation or, or alters one consciousness. <clears throat> it may be that people from a very, uh, you know, very in, in instinctive nature are maybe looking for these, these psychedelic substances because mankind has um, evolved over the, the millennium uh, utilizing them. So maybe they're looking for that experience that they, they're, they don't have or not sure what experience they're actually looking for. Maybe. I don't, I, who knows? I certainly agree with you that they can help with some of those experiences, for sure. Um, you know, that people take psychedelics, the, the relationship that they have with them, the number of times that they use them, their basis for using them, um, instead of doing something else, can be destructive. You know, I know people who sort of long for that experience that you talk about with psychedelics and, you know, who grew to use them after 15, 20, 25 years and realized, oh, yeah, I'm never, I have never really achieved what I set out to achieve by using them. Uh, so, and at the same time, addiction seems to happen when the expectations of a person are such that their current skill set can't quite meet those expectations. And so whatever drugs are doing for them or whatever they want, I think it would at least be to be able to meet life's expectations. <clears throat> Psychedelics have sort of more, more introspective feel to them when you talk about that. Other drugs have sort of a, like you say, escapist sort of quality to them. But really, I try to stay away from talking about the drugs themselves. I try to stay, I start trying to stick to the absolute plane of just human experience. So I don't have a, I don't have a, a strong opinion one way or another about whether psychedelics are more useful than other drugs or not. I do fear that people can incorporate the stories about psychedelics and assimilate those stories into the standard sort of recovery and disease model kind of boxes where they say, uh, this drug is bad, this drug is bad, this drug is bad, uh, but psychedelics might be able to help you. I don't think that's a healthy way of looking at it. Um, 
you gonna hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think the the value judgment. Um, I, I, I think you're correct there that you know there's the labeling. You know, this substance is bad. That substance is good. I mean, it's it's ultimately how you're going to use those substances, right? Mm. I mean, if you if you have command of your of your faculties and you you choose to alter your consciousness whichever way you you see fit, provided that that's not um, you know, I guess if it's if it's having a negative effect on your life, that's your responsibility. If it's having a negative effect on the people around you, then you know you're you need to do something about that behavior. Mm. So let's shift gears now into uh, overcoming addiction. And uh, can you please share with the listeners the the fundamentals of your life process program and and what sets it apart from other programs? Sure, it's a cognitive behavioral therapeutic track that people can go on. It's all online. And so people visit the program and they have a choice about doing exercise, written exercises on their own that nobody really sees. They just do these exercises. And there's something about articulating your problems in a way maybe you never have or in some sort of a depth and taking different angles on those problems that sort of mimic what you were talking about with psychedelics. There is a certain introspection. People, including me, will live mindlessly, habitually, and if you don't ever question the reasons why you believe something or why you do something, um, and just those kinds of things roll off a habitual repertoire, people who visit our program are, fi- are asked to answer very basic questions about their lives, about their belief systems, about their habits, whether they think there's impairment or distress in their lives due to their certain involvements, and what they think they might need to overcome those things. <clears throat> a lot of very positive feedback from people who do that track, no coaching involved. They just are finally writing things out for themselves. They have this reading, reading material from us and then they leave it. And it's, you know, for 1999 or whatever, they feel like they really did something positive with themselves. There's another track that's a full coaching coach led track where people get to engage with a coach as they write out these exercises. Um, I'll get in, I can get into that. Their feedback goes to a coach who then uses motivational interviewing techniques, sort of just reflecting, summarizing the things they've just read and, you know, has a few different summaries and maybe some questions that guide further conversation. Like, interesting, you say this, I wonder why this. And that's the crux of the coach-led program to get the conversation going in such a way that people start to figure out what exactly it is that they need to move forward and, and get better. Then coaches and, and clients can talk about what they might need in order to get there. So we have eight separate dimensions of the program um, and they include trying to get do some self-reflection, but using self-reflection not as, not as um, you know, digging into your past or trying to extract traumas but something more like uh, using, you know, what's your prologue? What got you here? And that part of that self-reflection is what are your best strengths? Um, You know, describe a time someone really helped you out, you know, because you kind of want to, we kind of want to say, talk about your best relationships. And some people might believe that they don't have any. So we frame it as describe a time someone really helped you out. Describe a time you helped somebody else out. Uh, let me talk about, let me get people talking about what the resources are 
what they have and what they need. Um, about their connection with the world, with people. Um, what are their skills, values, and what do you need to become better? What do you think you're missing, given everything you've just told me? What do you think it is they need to get better? Sort of tier one self-improvement is trying to figure, you know, become more self-reflexively aware. So sometimes people just get there and it makes them better. And then people can really question some specifics about what they need. Usually it's like, yeah, I guess I do need to, and, and whatever this routine is that they need to do, coaches in our program can help them figure out a manageable few steps forward so they don't feel like they're, uh, you know, blowing a gasket first, first couple of tries. Very good. Yeah. So let, let's go through these. Um, I think there's, there's eight modules. Is that correct? Yes. So we, we, we've, we've, we've covered self-reflection. Uh, the second one is values. Mm. Um, and so the values, I guess, are, are the values of, of, of how the person sees and perceives life or their life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just, what's most important to the person. And usually this is where um, you can find the most, the greatest dissonance. Like you'll get people to, what are five things that are most important to you? What are three things that are most important to you? What's the one thing that's so important to you that you would never want to leave behind? And a lot of times somewhere along there, people are already answering what is the subsequent question, which is, does your addiction violate has your addiction ever violated these values? And so we get people talking about using values as a blueprint to, okay, it's obvious that you've done some things that looking back on, you wish you hadn't done. How do you escape this cycle of doing so? How do you, you know, behave in, according, in accordance with your values? So that's that, that's that section. Um, and that, yeah, that's interesting. So obviously, and some of that can, can relate to, um, you know, whether it's your childhood or your, your high school period, just in terms of what has, what experiences have shaped you and, um, how you, because of that shaping, you know, what, what, what have you, what is your value system based on? What, what is important right. to you? What's not? And, and, uh, perhaps that's not a healthy value system because you've, you've, you've created a, a, uh, pathology to help you through life, which may, may or may not be helpful. That's absolutely right. So sometimes people, uh, the most helpful part of the entire values section is, so you start thinking, okay, let's, what's, what's fundamental about life? Okay. It's my values. What is it? What is it that I actually have control of? You know, that's not just running on, in my software running in my head. Um, and, we bring it back to values and those are like deeply held beliefs about what's important. But some people can get to that point and realize that, as you say, well, if I'm Jewish, I value this kind of a thing. If I, you know, if I was raised by doctors, maybe I value this kind of a thing. Maybe I value relationships and has a lot to do with upbringing, cultural surroundings, um, the bubble that you live in. So some people can realize, Oh shit, I don't even have control over that. So, so, you know, what do you do moving forward? The key there is that values can be fluid. You know, maybe it's that you can say something's important to you and I will take people on their word for whatever they say is important to them, but we still might ask why those things are important or what, given that they're values, 
what value does um, this sort of a bedrock formation of what life is supposed to be have in your life and what does it offer you? People often change or they, uh, they amend or add on to what they say that their values are. Well, I think that's very interesting because in your experience, uh, as, as you said earlier in our discussion here, uh, at some point in your life, you know, um, use, using, using the drug was, was more important to you than, than many other things. And until, yes. you're, until you had that shift in your value system where these other entities or the other aspects of your life became more important, to, you, you gravitated towards those. And so that's sort of that fluidity of your values. Right. Someone asked me while I was in throes of an addiction, what my values were. I wouldn't have said, I, I wouldn't have answered honestly, because I don't feel like I could have, but I probably wouldn't have said, um, using heroin is the most valuable thing to me or this, but I could get to a point where I say the state that I get in that helps me escape from life is more valuable to me than other aspects of life. Cause they just can't get me there. And if I talk myself into that, corner i may have been able to elevate things that i think should be important or i would like to be important or live by so yeah when you're addicted to something you're sort of you're not living your values and you're you're also sort of wearing them on your sleeve at the same time yes 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 that's that's uh, that's key um and then we then we move into motivation as as the third module yeah you can't you can't uh i mean why change if you're not motivated to do it. Uh, and it's, it's, it's the motivation is not all or nothing. Like, like I've talked before about, I told you I wanted to go running today. And that's part of a regiment that I'm building up. When I started uh, working out recently again, <laughs> I had this idea that, you know, I, I wrote out this, this workout regimen that I, that I knew I was going to follow because I was so highly motivated on this, this one Sunday that, I, you know, of course I'm going to be able to uh, get to the gym seven times a week and you know, do all these things and, and run. And that falls apart as soon as, you know, life gets in the way and other things happen. So motivation, it's about, all right, what does motivate? What, what does motivate you? What are you into? What kinds of things, what kinds of instances do you prefer? What kind of people do you prefer? What kinds of experiences do you seek? <clears throat> but also we get into the uh, a more meta level of what experiences do you seek in which circumstances? And so we, that part of the program is to help people identify what motivates them in temporal context. Okay. Okay. Um, and then we move into uh, resources. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is, I mean, probably the most important aspect of the whole program. If you don't, have the means to accomplish the thing you want to accomplish, then that's where it gets tricky. So resources is really about figuring out what you do have as a resource that maybe you didn't think of as a resource. Cause if you have, if you now have articulated the things that are motivating for you and, and you start thinking about resources, maybe, you you have resources, but it takes a few different actions from you in order to incorporate them as real resources. Maybe it's a connection that you have with another human being who could help you, but you really have to make the ask or something like that. And on the other hand, maybe it's resources that 
seem impossible to obtain or that they, you wouldn't be able to get them uh, without a lot of smaller steps. So part of the resources section is also how to break uh, finding, acquiring resources needed to overcome problems into smaller steps so that you can actually accomplish it. Uh, and that, that's almost like a military style problem solving, step-by-step, uh, step, piece by piece until it's assembled versus just getting overwhelmed by the, a larger task at hand. Yeah, it, the thing, the wisdom behind that too is that you, know, you have to start with the idea that maybe that there's not going to be a swell of new resources all at once. But at the same time, I rarely see someone who, who really starts that way all right, what's, what's actually manageable for me? Um, let's just break it into a task so I can trick my brain into thinking that I, that I did something positive today. So I can reinforce, when I ask at the end of the day, did I do this one small thing that was better than the thing I did yesterday? I can say, yes, I did it, even if it's making it bad or something like that. That's the that's kind of military mindset. But that, the idea of actually accomplishing things um, and moving forward really compounds over time. And I think in a very short amount of time for most people into something more fluid and meaningful. Right. And so the, the resources are almost uh, what tools do you have to act upon your motivation? Is it, would that be a correct interpretation? It's a great way to put it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and then obviously if, if you don't presently have those tools, how do you go about um, uh, obtaining them? Right. So putting in perspective, uh, maybe you don't have a hammer, but maybe you have the means to build one or something like that. That was a stupid analogy. But Take yeah, I think no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's it. I mean, if, if you, or let's say, you know, you got, you got a pile of nails, but you don't have a hammer. Um, then how do you go about, you know, if you, like you say, you need to, you need to make a, make an ask of somebody, Hey, you know, can, can I, can I use this? Can you help me? Or, 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 and I guess it's part, part of that then is also reaching out, um, which kind of leads into the, the, the next module which is uh, the support and intimacy right connection with other people really is everything and we can't you don't know anybody who's successful who doesn't have some form of deep connection meaningful connection with other people and it, i mean it's just the way that we live in this world now especially and just what makes us human is doing things in connection with meaningful relationships. And so a lot of times people come to us and they have, they say they have nobody or, you know, no family members. So we have to talk about what you do when you feel like you are in isolation, or maybe there are relationships that people say are in need of repair. And so that dimension, that, that support, part of the life process program deals with that as well. How, how do you repair relationships that need to be repaired? Um, or maybe you, you're not doing your part in connecting with others. I mean, maybe it's that people are desperately seek your attention for them and you feel incapable of doing it. And so it's not just support from others, but you supporting them or you being engaged with them in a, in a back and forth sort of mutually beneficial way. Interesting. Interesting. Um, and then I guess that uh, then we move into uh, mature identity, which we, we kind of touched on in, in your case uh, earlier. Yeah. Now with all of those things, you start to realize that you know, growing up doesn't just mean getting older. 
you know, it's, um, you get, you get older, you realize that, that your actions mean something to yourself and not just your now self, but your future self. And you get in negotiations for your future self, you know, or with your future self. And you also start to realize that your, that your actions mean something, not just to yourself, but to those very close to you. And if you're lucky, you get into a state that you realize that your actions have something meaningful to say for yourself, for the people closest to you and for the rest of the world. And you, your circle of influence is sort of infinite when you put yourself out there and that becomes a you know, self-powered machine. Maturity really means living a balanced life, an unselfish life, uh, and one that, you, that your actions portray meaning and value. And I think that by the time people have talked about all those other dimensions of their lives, it, it gets into a point of how do I incorporate this into what it really means to be an adult now? It really means to be a man or a woman, respectively, in this world. Right. And I guess for some people, um, you know, just through their, 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 their uh, developmental process, you know, some of those might be missing or they develop coping strategies mm. uh, to deal with situations in their lives that... <clears throat> worked at the time um and then now they're carrying those forward into their more mature lives and they're they're no longer as functional um and then they you know they they lead into some destructive path Hmm. yeah i mean for and for some people i'm talking about this like it's uh, ground up work and it is to an extent theoretically but you know someone could have an someone's addiction could be really a series of very small events in some ways an addiction could can sort of seem like a bad weekend, you know, like you've developed habits, but just upon inspection of them and deciding that you don't want to do them. I know that sounds silly. You, you overcome it. You already have sort of those life channels in place and you just need to incorporate your beliefs and your values into those life channels. So I think this is what you're getting at. Sometimes maturity, it doesn't mean that you have to go through all of the development, developmental processes. It means that there's something about the way you're living that doesn't complete your mature identity. And so yeah, you can, yeah. It's not congruent anymore with where you're at. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then we actually, we miss rewards. Let's, let's just oh, uh, right. skip. Yeah. We just, let's pop back to rewards there. Yeah. That, that is mainly thinking about what rewards really mean. What is it? What is really rewarding to you? I mean, you can get, you can, get yourself in a state of mind that feels like it's offering a reward because it's an escape or uh, some kind of immediate pleasure. But we are much more than our single moments of time. Uh, You can't, things don't feel rewarding or pleasurable if you're trying to, to stay in that space forever. So if I'm, let's take, let's take a uh, practical example, heroin, for instance, my, may have put me in a state of mind where I thought, okay, finally, my problems are gone. <clears throat> the problems aren't gone. You just are in a state of mind that you are able to avoid them. You turn down the noise, the feedback long enough that you can avoid them. And when that stops working, you still have your problems. And if you're not doing anything to deal with them head on, they're probably also getting worse. So that's the, this whole module is distinguishing in a, in a soft way. I mean, we ask people what is rewarding to them. We're not, we don't, we're not giving this diatribe or something like that, but what, what's rewarding about your 
addiction, something you're getting some experience that you seek. Um, and then in conjunction with values, what, what does it really mean to be rewarding? What would be, what would be a reward that beats that experience or how can you achieve similar experiences that also don't detract from other positive experiences that you want? And so we're putting rewards in its full picture. Um, and the time element's the big one. You know, what are you going to do today that can continue to feel rewarding for yourself tomorrow? So it's almost a, a reprogramming in terms of what, what is satisfying or what is fulfilling um, or, or, or making different choices to achieve those ends. Sure. But it's a, a very much a self-reprogramming. No, just a, a reframing, I guess, would be a, an even better way to say it. Reprogramming is true. But uh, just yeah, the, the, self reprogramming. Yeah, it's not, yeah, not, yeah. Like you're, not like you're brainwashing your clients into, into <laughs> something. Yeah. No, but like you said, with uh, like we mentioned about Stanton Peel's work resonating with me so deeply that I was able to say, ah, yes, that's that was the missing piece. This is these are the things about addiction that I think, but I just haven't been able to put words to. Um, when people start thinking about rewards, you know, if what you're trying to do is get out of a destructive cycle, and you can think about what would be the reward of getting out of this destructive cycle? Talk about how those rewards would, you know, totally uh, overwhelm whatever rewards you got from your addiction and starting to visualize that and realize that, yeah, that's like a total reframing that people do on their own. And like you say, a, a total reprogramming of, of a, you know, not very well inspected belief. Right, right. Uh, and then, and then finally, we're into greater goals, which obviously sort of seems to be reflective of, of the rewards as well, I would imagine. For sure. Um, but, you know, putting yourself out there so that the things you do are purposeful and meaningful. Like, um, I don't really know ever what's next for me. I know um, I'm such a freelance kind of a person. I do consulting stuff. But I live, uh, I have so many greater goal. I, I have, I want to be honest. I want to help with education. I want to help others. I want to do, do good for myself, my family and other people. And that has just launched me into, I live by those sorts of rules and that's launched me into just a never ending like ability to take on new things if they feel like they are well incorporated into that life. And that sort of looking forward and there's never really an end to it. And that's delightful to me is the greater goals that I'm talking about that, a you know, a self realized person will have <clears throat> prospection projects, things that give you self-worth and that, you know, you're doing uh, for the benefit of others is what we mean by greater goals. And that's really the key. That's how people, that's the difference between the disease model and the life process program really is that greater goal period. Like, Right now, at that in that module, that's module eight. You're no longer talking about your your identity as an addicted person. It's more like, okay, we got that over with. You know what you need. What what is your life really? You know what meaning and purpose do you have in this world? And that's the crux. That's agency. And it's a completely a non-disease way of thinking about things. You leave addiction behind at that point. Right. So that would be, uh, and so you mentioned your, your own personal goals there. I mean, that will sound like uh, daily affirmations almost. 
Yeah, totally accidentally. I mean, I don't, I don't do wake up and do daily affirmations or something like that, but, but uh, I'm just so always overwhelmed with overwhelmed. Maybe isn't the right word, but I'm, I'm so busy with things that I love doing and that work in balance. Yeah. So it creates, so this is the development of a new life path um, uh, to, to empower and to provide meaning and, um, you know, I guess whether it's, but not everybody would be looking to sort of, uh, service, uh, of others, but, um, you know, service of self and, and that, uh, betterment of oneself and, and trying to just, uh, essentially be the best person that you can be and however that looks for the individual. Yeah. Yeah, sure. It's, um, Whatever it means to understand that, you know, a lot of people like to hold things stable. Like if there's a part of having an addiction or experiencing addiction is to, to chase some sort of experience you prefer and you want to hold that thing stable. And the stability that you create in your mind is different than the uncertainty of the world. So part of Greater Goals too is just appreciating uncertainty, appreciating that there's a new day, things can change and that you have the ingredients, whatever they are, to make your life worthwhile. That's good. That's good. Um, and then in your book, you, you discuss 10 values which promote the recovery from addiction. And I wanted to touch on a few in detail. Mm. Um, life purpose and meaning. So maybe maybe uh, just a few thoughts there in terms of why that is uh, so important for the, the recovery process. I mean, it's same same as I was just saying. It's purpose above all. I mean, what it... What is it that you're doing that makes your life worth living? It sounds so stupid. Like, why would you, why would you put that into a, a book about how to beat addiction? That's just complete common sense. And so hence the title. I think people try to sidestep some of these things that you're about to list, including living a purposeful life, doing something like um, arresting yourself and forcing yourself to do sort of programming or talk about your worst memories of your past is sort of the opposite of doing something purposeful. I think that that's introspection, therapy, things like that are, are perfectly fine, but not if you're bogged down by them. That's, I think, the opposite of what living purposefully means. Sure, I guess, and that becomes static and almost wheel spinning as opposed to forward momentum towards something uh, better or, or more fulfilling. Precisely. Yeah. Um, and then we move into self-empowerment. Yeah, the idea that you create your circumstances and that you're happy about that um, rather than something about you is no good so that you can't create something purposeful or meaningful. Very good. And joy? Uh, yeah, I'm joy and joy as opposed to pleasure. You know, joy being totally fluid and time, you know, evergreen. Um, something that builds on itself that's just all encompassing in your life as opposed to pleasure that sort of pleasure sort of feels like joy <clears throat> it gives you some illusory sense of joy but I forget who it was I was listening to talk about this but there's a thought experiment that I was listening to maybe you've heard it I don't know and someone was saying well what if you can invent this drug like it's like heroin 2.0 it makes you feel the best you ever felt and it like, would there be any reason you wouldn't want to just like sit in your chair and just be comatose with that drug? And the answer is, uh, yeah, you wouldn't want to do that because 
then everything about life that makes it interesting, the give and take and the ebb and flow of life is gone. Your, your ability to create the experiences or experience them at all is gone. So, 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 so joy would also then be, uh, could be expressed as living a joyful life. mm, Yes. Okay. Okay. Great. Uh, and then competence and confidence. Competence, it comes back to skills. Um, you know, do you have the skills that it takes to meet the demands life places on you or the people place on you and confidence that you, you have what it takes. Um, and so one informs the other, of course, the competence will inform confidence and confidence will help you become, you know, rendered more competent. Uh, but it takes a certain level of skill it's in some domain, you know, whatever way you choose to take your life and confidence that you are the person creating those experiences that, that propels you forward. Right. Uh, and then maturity. I mean, we've kind of touched on that one um, previously, but I mean, that's, I guess that sort of self-explanatory almost, right? Yeah. Like you're, you're now a self-powered machine. You're not, you're not the one feeding off of somebody else or, or, you know, relying on some other sort of experience from the outside, you're mature, you are the one creating things, you realize that your actions have some meaning, not just to you, but to people around you. And so that you have to, you know, it's what it means to grow up. So it's all, almost like a self actualization. Yeah, all the things that your grandma told you. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, and then do addicts, fall short of loving themselves generally and, and is, and how can they correct that? Oftentimes I think people with addictions are, are falling short of loving themselves by virtue of the fact that they're falling short of taking care of themselves. Like if you, I, I ask people sometimes, and this is, this is like age old cognitive behavioral therapy, but um you know, if you imagine a lot, who do you love most and you do anything for, and you know, and imagine they were in this position, what would you do for them? Um, and when you take that, put that question back on them, will you do this? You know, are you worth doing this for? If you're going to do this for somebody else, a lot of times people will, will admit, no, you know, I don't, I guess I don't really want to spend all that time on myself and maybe I don't feel like I am worth taking care of. And then comes that reprogramming again, that in line with maturity, that you being the best person you can be really does affect other people that you love. Uh, you need to love yourself. I mean, I, I'm not, to whatever extent that, that means something to somebody, but you at least need to appreciate yourself and respect yourself enough to take care of yourself the way that you might take care of another person so that you can take care of another person. Sure, sure. So that almost like a pattern interrupt in uh, in NLP, mm. where you're where you're the the that self defeating <clears throat> loop is is interrupted and and a new 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 syntax is added in there. Right. Excellent, excellent. Um, so Zach, if if you could go back in time and speak with yourself as a an eighteen or twenty year old young man, uh, what advice would you have for that uh, that young fellow? Oh, that I think just that I'm chasing the wrong dog that I'm, uh, you know, I was, I had a hunch that I had something to offer the world for a long time. I thought, you know, I love writing. I love 
playing music. I love uh, interacting with people. I think I can be a social person. And for whatever reason, uh, I was kind of blocked out of doing those things. I was told I was different or that, and I, and I got bad grades and I wasn't sure. And I convinced myself that I just wasn't a very good person. And that uh, any, any, uh, any ideas that I could become something that I wanted to become was a delusion. So I would tell myself that uh, I'm actually much closer to achieving those things I want to achieve than I think that I am. Yeah, interesting. Then again, I wouldn't do it differently. In a way, it's so advantageous to have experienced turmoil. I know that sounds silly, but you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely, once, for sure. Once you have a recognition of the reality of what life is, what it takes to overcome a problem, the depths to you know how far your problems can get it's it really creates an advantage and nice perspective so yeah absolutely. so i might not i might not not say anything to my former self who knows <laughs> <laughs> just sort of sit back and say oh boy here we go yeah hey you you, you live to 34 yeah <laughs> yeah um and if, if you could change something on earth at this very moment with a snap of your fingers or a, the wave of a magic wand what would that be uh our ability to have discussions difficult conversations with each other without um you know, forming deep tribal identities as a consequence of trying to do so and failing. Yeah. yeah and that, that, that's, that's very interesting because I had to uh, get my hair cut the other day and, and uh, the gentleman I was having my hair cut with, uh, we had the exact same conversation about, uh, you know, how we've, we've really become very tribal and, and uh, if you're not part of my tribe, you're the enemy. And, and yeah. it's become a very, very strange narrative where we can't have, uh, you know, whether it's an academic or, or a uh, more colloquial discussion, uh, everybody seems to be so enamored with their own perspective that they're completely unwilling to look at anything else and, and uh, to the detriment of everybody. I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, so what, what is addiction treatment um, and substance abuse uh, or, or the, 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 the view on substance abuse look like uh, in North America if uh, Mr. Rhodes was to become the, the health czar? It would look like taking care of the problems that we know we need to take care of, but not trying to sidestep them for more simple solutions. So it would probably incorporate some of the things that people do now. Like <clears throat> I would, <laughs> when I run for president in 2024, <laughs> you know, it, it wouldn't be so impossible for people to alter their consciousness in the first place with their preferred method. And on the other hand, I would do something to tackle the fundamental problems of just social isolation, poverty, and not just money, but impoverished skill sets and, you know, <clears throat> and help just help address some of those fundamental things that we try not to address because they're just such, they seem like such impossible conversations. And at the very least I would avoid or be aware of when we're trying to form a conclusion or a solution to addiction that we're really taking some shortcuts and that those shortcuts are detrimental. Right. Right. So uh, just, just to, to, to unpack some of that yeah. um, sounds like you're, you're as part of that harm reduction uh, you'd be in favor of, of uh, legalizing all drugs, uh, regulating them and, and then, you know, ensuring that there's uh, some education about them and, and quality and purity standards that the, the people are obtaining. Absolutely. I think that would be far less dangerous than our current approach at the very least. And that's the least I could say about it. Um, I don't know what it looks like to make that transfer from the way that we demonize drugs now. Um, and our, our, 
entire temperance attitude towards drugs to becoming illegal. So I, I'm not quite clear on what that the road to get there is. But I you talk about education too. It wouldn't be an education like if you ever try a drug, you're doomed. Um, that causes so much isolation for the people who try drugs and they realize, oh, I'm actually fine. And realize they can't trust the adults who have told them that uh, drugs are horrible. So yes, I, for those reasons and, and more, I would be in favor of legalization of all substances and just trying to, trying to talk to each other like adults, like you talked about European countries might talk about alcohol and how the, you would incorporate those in your life and how you might make a mistake with those things, just like you might make a mistake in a love relationship or you might make a mistake by involving yourself in anything, but you can have that open dialogue. Right, right. Yeah, and, and of course, at that point, then, you know, the other part of that discussion is why are, why, why as society we, are we allowing billions of dollars to flow into uh, crime syndicates, um, mm. which has only increased through the war on drugs. Um, and, uh, you know, clearly, clearly humans continue to want to alter their consciousness. So why don't we look to uh, rationalize that entire trade and um you know it, it, obviously it would be a, a massive power shift um some of the agencies like uh the dea might have to disappear um but uh, you know if it, and then i think the same thing i mean if 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 you can go and buy whatever you want at the, the local uh, drugstore um does it become so cool to you know try and acquire that substance as a, as a young person and uh you know maybe go down a, an unfulfilling path um you know, if, if, if the education is there, you try it, it's like, well, that wasn't that great. Or, um, you know, and, and then of course, in, in, in your circumstance there with, uh, you know, potentially uh, fentanyl tainted opium, those situations don't occur. And now there's less demand on our EMTs and less demand on our healthcare system for, uh, you know, perfectly uh, avoidable situations. Yeah. And it wouldn't solve all problems. I mean, you don't just rid people of the problems that, uh, you know, the overarching problems that might cause things like addictions, but it certainly takes care of death by a drug. And if you can actually be honest about things like, you know, before fentanyl was such a, a scare, before it was so ubiquitous, uh, people would still say, you know, prescription opioids are killing people. And it's almost, almost, almost never the case that people have died by taking opioids alone. It's, it was almost always the case that they mixed drugs, usually mixed sedatives, or maybe they mixed a whole cocktail of drugs. So those are people that either are looking for, I mean, they need the destruction, you know, they need to be, to just utterly fade out of consciousness or uh, people who were not educated in the first place that, that mixing those drugs would, could cause more damage than if they didn't. And right. so it does, it does give, get us on an even playing field to first look at, well, who's, who are the ones who are really uh, using to destruction? Because now we've taken the drug demonization out of the way we can say, all right, what are the basic life problems we need to address for those people? Um, and on the other hand, we were able to have those conversations realistically about what are what would be the most damaging feature of taking one drug or another or a mix of drugs or another mix of drugs. Right. Yes, very good. Um, and then, you know, you, you touched on the, the opiate um, well, you know, the, the the news certainly calls it an opiate uh, epidemic. I mean, we I think we're both uh, America and Canada. We're both seeing a lot of uh, overdose deaths, uh, a lot of people um, hooked on opiates. Um, 
what must happen immediately, you know, future generations are to experience a healthy, happy and prosperous life that uh, isn't, um, you know, isn't trapped in this addiction cycle. Um, I don't know how it relates to opiates, really. I mean, I don't know how my answer would, inc would incorporate opiates into the problem. I, that, that narrative that opiates have caused this, these addiction problems is just, you know, I want to ask, first of all, most people who use opiates don't become addicted to them. Uh, and when people do become addicted to them, most people move past those addictions because they find ways to live uh, more constructively. I mean, it's a very small percentage of people who are actually using drugs and then stay addicted to them. The drug isn't the problem. Social circumstances uh, are the problem. Psychological and social circumstances are the problem. And, you know, maybe that sounds a little too earnest, but no, but I, it's the I, truth. I think it's, so, so. I think it's very accurate. And it kind of goes back to uh, what you were saying earlier in terms of, uh, you know, the, the inability of people to have a discussion without drawing a tribal line and, and hmm. uh, you know, people become more and more isolated. Um, and, you know, certainly <clears throat> with our most recent uh, challenge with uh, with COVID, you know, there's more social isolation, uh, you know, more more stress, more unhappiness, and so certainly certainly the a greater demand for people to escape their social circumstance. Yeah, in a way, it's a it's totally the wrong frame, and I think you're you're echoing or purposely, I, I believe. You can tell me if I'm wrong. That you know the standard frame that people put this whole addiction thing in, and so you can. You know, a lot of people will say, given that opioids are prescribed, there's, there's alarming rates, uh, how do you curb addiction? And my better question, I think, is, you know, look, let's look to uh, inner city Baltimore or, or the equivalent social circumstance uh, of somewhere in Appalachia in the U.S. and ask when somebody is male, uh, single, uneducated in their between 40, you know, 30, 40, 50, they smoke, they eat unhealthily, they have, you know, they don't have means uh, to move forward. The question is, what do you do about that problem? I don't have a great answer to how to deal with that problem, but I can at least point to the fundamentals that, that that's the problem and that there, there are ways that people overcome problems like that and that we can at least have a discussion about how to do it rather than say drugs made people the way that they are when they're addicted or, or when they die. So if we just eliminate the drug, everything will be better. Yeah. I mean, certainly if, if, if you have no um, opportunity or if you, if within your framework or your, your skill set, if you, if you are in the mental state that you have no options, there is no, you have no prospects, you have no opportunities. Um, you know, you're definitely looking to escape or, or exit. Right. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's great, Zach. Uh, where can more people uh, learn about you and your work and your books? Um, look for Outgrowing Addiction on Amazon. I've said that I'm updating our site, our website for the book for a long time now, and I have not followed through with that, but I, I will soon. You know, people will soon be able to see it at outgrowingaddiction.com. Um, the Life Process Program, which is just lifeprocessprogram.com, carries with it, I think, all of these resources, including a listing of our book, um, you know, ways to join the program, free resources, videos, articles that I've written and Stan, Stanton Peel has written. I think that should do it. That's, I don't want to overwhelm people with too many, too many choices. 
Sure. And then, and then your, um, the name of your podcast again? I host two podcasts. One is the Social Exchange Podcast and one is the LPP Podcast. LP, LPP is the Life Process Program. Okay. Um, so I'll, I'll get those links up onto the, the show notes so if people want oh, to that's excellent. Uh, d- dig into uh, the program more. Or, and I, I've, I've actually read the book. It's a, it's a, it's a quick read. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's very practical. Um, you know, it's kind of a, as, as our conversation, as, as your philosophies, it's just kind of very matter of fact. Um, and, you know, I think people, it's empowering because it's, you know, it tells people that there isn't something fundamentally wrong with them, that they're stuck in a situation that given, given a bit of work, um, that they can get out of. 100%. Uh, you were. <laughs> You're my best uh, promoter so there far. We go. <laughs> Our, I mean, it's it's great. It's super simple. It's not it's not overly complicated, and you know, and it, and it doesn't. Um, again, it's empowering because it gives people that message that there isn't anything wrong with you. You're just mm. stuck in a situation, or you're in a life uh, event that uh, you can uh, move past it with uh, with some effort. Right. You said it. Excellent. Well, sir, it's been uh, it's been an excellent uh, discussion with you. Very illuminating. Um, thank you for your time, and uh, maybe we'll look to uh, reconvene here at a later date when you've got some more uh, information to discuss. Let's do that. It was great talking to you, and I hope to do it again. All right. Thank you, sir. You have a great afternoon and, uh, and a great weekend. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks.